Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. His message is entitled, The Great Removal. Curtis. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to be here uh, on this uh, Day of Atonement, this rainy Day of Atonement. Uh, it's great to see everyone here. I uh, hope we're all doing well. I uh, hope we're all settled in and we're feeling okay and uh, we're taking this day in because it's a very important day and I think all of us realize that this is a very important day and so the, it's a day that has so many different moving parts with so many different themes so many different concepts so much theology that's uh, impacted and packed into this day and there's so many things that we could cover and I'm sure that we have heard over the years and some of these themes include the idea of covering that's what this day means. It's a day of covering. And so that's a big concept. A day of reconciliation. It's a world where, it's a day where the world, as well as us, the congregation of God is being put back in reconciliation with God. It's a day of affliction, as we are today commanded to afflict ourselves through fasting and through abstaining from work. It's a day of cleanliness and holiness. And we see that that's a big emphasis on this day when we read the scriptures about this ritual, about the, the things that was said to be done. In particular, when we talk about and we look at the high priest and the different cleansings and the different washings that that individual had to go through just to be able to be in a position to be able to perform the duties that he was required to perform. It's a day of humility as we afflict our souls, as we realize the need that we have on just the smallest thing as water. You don't go with it for a few hours and you start to feel it. You start to feel just how absolutely lowly you actually are as a human being, despite what you may think. And of course, this last one, which is going to be what we talk about at the very end, which is where the title of this message comes from, it's a day of removal. It's a day of removal. Which brings me to the scripture that inspired that title in Micah the seventh chapter. So let's turn there real quick. Micah the seventh chapter. Give you a little background about this prophet. This was a prophet that was ministering to the uh, kingdom of Judah back in the time period under the, the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Somewhere around the time period of 750 B.C. to 700 B.C. And if you were Micah, living in this period of time, you experienced quite a bit. You saw a lot of things that probably brought a lot of great sadness to you. Some of these things included, even though it had became a rival kingdom to your own, the kingdom of Israel in the north, he experienced in 722 the Assyrians taking over and taking into captivity that northern ten tribes of the kingdom of Israel. This would have also put him in witness, not to Judah's, captivity, but to at least Assyria's uh, besiegement of, or rather, uh, Judah's besiegement of Assyria, because we know in the history, even though Judah was eventually taken captive by the Babylonians, earlier and after the Assyrians took over the northern tribes of Israel, they did breach into some of the lands of Judah and started to become a threat to the kingdom of Judah. And so surrounding all of these events in the life of Micah, these political events, these things that were going on, when one reads this book, there are many themes that are found. 
There's a the theme of idolatry. We know that the kingdom of Israel in the north, that was the, the primary sin that they were involved in, was idolatry, going after and breaking the covenant that had been given to them over and over and over again. We see that Canaanite religion that God initially said to wipe out still continued to try to creep back into the nation of both Israel, of course, but even the kingdom of Judah. We see a big theme in Micah is social injustice. And in particular, we're talking about social injustice at the hands of wealthy, elite individuals who kept certain individuals who were on the fringes of society, the poor, the lowly, downtrodden. We even see in Micah, the sixth chapter, verse 8, the famous saying that many of us have probably read before and have heard said, talking about what does God require of you but to walk justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with one's God. We see that this is a prophet that emphasized restoration to both Israel and Judah. Restoration in the form of the Messiah. We actually see quite a bit said about Judah being restored and about Israel being restored in this prophet. In fact, when we go to the New Testament, whenever King Herod the Great wanted to know where the Messiah was supposed to be born, he got all the scholars and all the lawyers together, and where did they point to? Micah, the fifth chapter, verse 2, talking about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. But the primary theme that I want to bring out for this message here on this Day of Atonement is Micah's theme of God's incomparability. In fact, what's interesting is that when you actually look at the name of Micah, his name actually means who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? And in verse 7, he asked this exact question that his name means, or rather verse 18 of chapter 7, at the very closing of his book. Because although he's a prophet and that he's preaching repentance, he's preaching uh, you know, to the people who are going astray to come back to the covenant, he's always hopeful. And at the very end of his book, in Micah the 7th chapter, verse 18, he says, Who is a God like you, hardening iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And in this passage, we find several different things. Number one, we see that we have a God that is so incomparable. We have a God that is so merciful, despite our transgressions, He still finds mercy for us and He's still gracious to us. Secondly, not only does he have mercy and have grace for us, he desires to be merciful to us. In fact, if you look at the New English Translation Bible, on the last part of verse 18, it says, but delights in showing loyal love. A God that delights in being gracious and merciful to us. And lastly, which is... Essentially, what the inspiration for this title, this message was, he says, he casts our sins far away to the very depths of the sea. He removes our sins from among us and from among the congregation, outside of the camp. Now, we know that the ultimate example of this, the ultimate display of this 
love, this mercy, this graciousness came through our high priest, Jesus Christ, in which this day is center all around. And through Christ, this perfect, loyal love of God was perfectly displayed. You know, I think a lot of us do, a, you know, in, in life we have things where maybe it's an event, maybe it's a day, maybe it's, you know, what, whatever it be. There's something, maybe it's a song that reminds you of something. Maybe it's, uh, you know, a, a particular day that reminds you of something from the past. For the past few years, every atonement, the scripture that always comes to my mind is in Philippians, the second chapter, verses 5 through 8. And so that's what we're going to turn to right now. And we're going to look at the amazing display of the loyal love of God for all of his children, for everyone. The very famous chapter in the New Testament, very popular. In fact, this string of verses that we're getting ready to read, most historians and scholars think that this was an early Christian hymn. What that means is, is that this might have been something that they sung actually in the church or in the different gatherings that they came together in. And the reason they think that, of course, is because when you look at it, it, looks, it fits kind of the way that they would create and develop hymns in that point in time. But verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Read this many times before, most of all of us have. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. And this passage right here shows us so much about the nature of Christ, about what was going on behind, what, about, about the significance, about the reality of that decision to do in which what he did to allow God's program, God's plan of salvation for mankind to take place. I've always looked at this as having three particular things that this passage shows us. And I'm sure there's more, but I'm just going to list three of them here today. First of all, it shows the state in which Christ was in. It says the very form of God. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible translation says, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's just think about what that means. Let's think about the position in which Jesus Christ, before being incarnate in flesh, meant. Where he was, what he was. And despite that, treasured us over rightfully staying within his own prerogative state to do the necessary work to redeem all of us. Secondly, it shows how in spite this present state, he willingly looked at our need over his own and willingly took on flesh on our behalf. And of course, we understand that God has no need. He has no need. It's a willful, it's a, it's a desire for us. The correct rendering here is he emptied himself. Christ, who lived in the form of God in heaven, gave up that eternal realm and entered our realm on behalf of me and you. And by becoming flesh, just think about especially what the passage says here, what he subjected himself to. Subjected himself to sinful humanity. 
to all the things that humanity brings. To the need that He did not once have, but now He does need simply because He has taken on our realm as a human. Food, water, air, temptation. Of course, we know that His continual line of support was God the Father. But He subjected Himself to this, to this human realm for me and you. And the last thing that I think it shows is that it shows His love for us and His humility by not just being born of flesh, but even dying one of the most humiliating and unjust means man could fathom at this time in world history. Jesus' humility did not stop in just coming into our realm as a human being for me and you, but actually went as furthest as you can go, being arrested, taken by the hands of sinners, and being crucified, being executed in one of the most humiliating ways a person could be executed. Being executed in a way that essentially was for criminals. Executed as a criminal. Executed as someone who was a lawbreaker. Who was deserving of death. Because of breaking some law. Let's just think about that. I'd like to echo the question of Micah. Who is like our God? Who is like our high priest? Who is like our Messiah? Today, we, as we know and as we are, we are told to afflict our souls through fasting. We are told not to work. But I say that we also should be in complete and utter awe of the God and the Messiah in which me and you have, the high priest that we have that has brought all of these things as a reality, covering of us, atoning for us, bringing reconciliation to us, removing the sins far, far away. As we all know, there's quite a complex ritual that the Old Testament outlines for the specific day. Many of us have went through it many times. A lot of moving parts. You couple that with the ideas from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, you have yourself quite the study. And obviously, because of time, we can't get into all those things. We know that in the ritual, there's this scenario, which is very different, very unique, doesn't really happen very often, where there's two animals, two of the same kind, two goats, he goats, selected. One of them is put to death. And one of them, the iniquities of all the people is placed on that goat and is led away into the wilderness never to return again. And so, despite what some have said, what this symbolizes or what it doesn't symbolize, I think here today we can agree on one thing. It is definitely, this ritual, this day, a foreshadowing of what the prophet Micah declared in that he has taken our sins away far away from us. And that we truly do have a God and Savior like none other. Who for their love for us and for the love of this world has carried our sins far away and done so because of their steadfast and loyal love for me and you. Let's not forget about this day today or even tomorrow or even the next day. Obviously, many of us, like every year, this is that pause right before the glorious Feast of Tabernacles that we go and celebrate. 
But let's not forget about this day. And let's not forget about the timeline and the program of God. The return of Jesus Christ. The establishment of his kingdom on this earth. I think all of us would agree, in our own personal lives, there's still things that we need to remove from our lives. And thankfully, we'll never be able to do on our own, but we have Christ, our Savior, our atoning high priest that is able to perfectly do that, who didn't need to be washed, who didn't need to put on linens that had been cleansed, because in and of himself, he was pure and was holy. And he was able to put down that atonement once for all time. But let us not forget what this feast is getting ready to re represent. That kingdom coming here on this earth and that return of Christ establishing that kingdom here on this earth. We live in a world, we live in a place that needs atonement. That needs the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and needs the metaphorical removal of sin from this earth. To prepare the God, the Christ, that will establish himself as King of kings and Lord of lords. So as we go to this Feast of Tabernacles, and as, more importantly, just here today, as we think about these things, let's think about personally, on a personal level, how are we actively contributing to preparing a world to receive Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And how are we as a church, as a body of Christ, worldwide, how are we contributing to that message? How are we contributing to that factor, to that reality that is going to take place? I leave you with those thoughts as we continue this Day of Atonement.